Thanks, Michael. If you want to leave your outlines open so you can take notes and understand what God's saying to us in His Word today, why don't we pray? We understand this section of, of history and, and see clearly what God is trying to say to us tonight. Let's pray together. Father God, it is such a privilege to be able to hear you speak. We want to thank you that tonight we can come together with your word open and your spirit here, present in your word, making it come alive and changing us. And we ask that tonight as we think through what you have to say to us, that we would see the king that you are. We would see where we turn our backs against you and that we would see what an a clear and helpful warning you have for us today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Most human beings spend a large proportion of their life trying to find or win or build or buy security. Either for ourselves or for those that we love, right? The question I've got for us tonight is, have you found it? Have you found what you are looking for? Are you at the place in your life where you've found enough security? Are there enough locks on your doors, passwords on your computer and your phone? Do you have insurance on your car, on your possessions, on your life? Do you have enough degrees or marks or papers to pass what you need to pass to to get the qualification you need to be qualified? Are your job prospects enough? Are your study habits good enough to see you through? Are you healthy enough? Do you have the right relationships? Do you have enough friends, enough contacts? Have you generated enough influence? Have you earned enough praise? Are you satisfied with where you're at? Have you received enough affection? Imagine what it would look like to live life where we are 100% secure. Can you imagine that? 100% secure. Totally happy with where everything is at. Nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. Having absolute certainty. Man, that sounds so attractive, doesn't it? Doesn't that idea sound attractive to you? To live with absolute certainty and security? My hunch is that most of us spend our lives in pursuit of that feeling. And what we'll see today is that that feeling is actually possible. It's actually possible to find 100% security, but not in the places that we so often look, or at least I do. We'll find it in an odd way, in an upside-down kind of way that makes us think very differently from the world around us. For the way to get security, God tells us, is actually quite counterintuitive. Security was exactly what Israel were after in this section of of history that 1 Samuel reports to us. Imagine yourself in in their shoes, surrounded by nations who want their land, who who want them to be slaves for them, facing the very real threat of invasion any moment, with nations with super weapons, with chariots and horses and massive armies. Now imagine facing that very real probability of people coming with the idea that you have no leader remember back to the the end of judges the book before one samuel and kind of the chronology of the bible um israel in those days had no king they had no leader everyone did what they saw fit it's a scary situation to be in the shoes of israel right now and the question on the lips of this nation is who will lead us to security how can we find security a question that's very similar to the position many of us are at. My hunch is all. Leadership had been a massive area of failure throughout Israel's whole history. 
Just 20 to 25 years earlier, Israel had marched into battle against the Philistines. If you remember back, they thought that if they took God's ark, the place where God dwelt, down into the battle, that they would most certainly win because God was on their side. They had the most powerful God in the universe and they commanded him and they marched God straight down into the battle. But they couldn't have been more mistaken. God wouldn't be used as some lucky charm. The Philistines smashed them. The ark was taken off them. Massive destruction of this nation. 30,000 foot soldiers died. Do you get the need for security for this nation? Their God was gone. But God fought his own battles. The Philistines captured the ark, put it in the kind of temple of Dagon, the God of the time. And at that moment, overnight, God brought the Philistines and their God, Dagon, to his knees. God won his own battles. He, he won against these other nations. He put them in their place. We saw the ark after seven months return back to Israel, as did this nation's hope of security. Maybe now, with God back on their turf, maybe now things would be better. Have a listen to what happened in chapter 7, verse 2. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kirith Jerem. Then the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. Samuel told him, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths that are among you. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship him only. Then he will rescue you from the hands of the Philistines. So Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths and only worshipped the Lord. Now, as a reader of the story, you kind of get to this point, you're like, is this it? Like, have Israel finally put God back in his place, treated God as God? Have they dealt with their own rebellion and treated God as they should? Is Samuel the leader Israel are looking for? Is this the guy? Could it be that finally Israel have got the leader they're looking for? Could it be that Israel's security issues were over? Samuel's led them back to God. He's pointed out the way to live. Israel started treating God as God, not in a half-baked way. They dedicate themselves to him. Did you see that? They see God for who he is. They stop worshipping their pretend gods and live for the true and living God. Now, if you're here tonight and you're like, this feels a little bit just like folk story, like legend. And you're kind of thinking, well, you know, is this really legit? These guys just have got this idea of a God in their head and they're worshipping him. Have a look at chapter 5 later. Read chapter 5 of 1 Samuel and see, really, the God that we met last week. See his power. See why the, the Israelites were like, that is God. <laughs> there wasn't a shadow of doubt amongst them at this point. God was the ruler of the world and they were to live for him. Security seemed back in Israel. And if we shut our Bibles at this point, you think this looks good, right? This is, this is where we want things. But if Israel are anything like me, and my guess is you, whenever we find our security, it's not long before we see something else. Ooh, bright light. <laughs> Look at that. I wonder if that would make me more secure. It's not long until something comes up. Or the thing that we had that we found our security in gets outdated. And there's a new one and we want more and... It's exactly what happened to Israel. Have a look at chapter 8 as we start this passage. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges, leaders over Israel. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned towards dishonest gain, took bribes, perverted justice. Whenever you hear of a great leader's children, there's a very well-founded and grounded case to be saying, look out. We heard what happened uh, at the start of the book of 1 Samuel with Eli, with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and how they led Israel in, into, into battle and they lost the ark and they were awful and treacherous people. And here we see Samuel, this great leader, installs his sons to help lead and his sons 
like Eli's, end up being takers, not givers. Thieves, not servants. They take bribes. They're for dishonest gain. They're about themselves getting. They want, to, they want to find their own security in themselves. So they take from Israel. They're a law unto themselves. They're doing whatever they want, whatever they see fit. They pervert justice. It's interesting, throughout the book of Judges, we see each time that Israel cry out to God, God raises up a leader. And through that leader, God saves Israel. That leader takes them and wins the battle. And then while that leader's alive... Life in Israel is good. People get rid of their idols and they serve the true and living God. That leader dies and Israel go back to kind of how they were before. And it's like, oh, until finally God sends judgment on them and then they finally cry out to God and then God raises up another leader. Leadership never passed from father to son. It didn't work that way because service of God is not hereditary. It's It's nurture, not nature. That's why for those of us who have kids or might have kids, we need to spend our time making sure our kids get who God is and what he's done. That's why as students, as people, we need to be encouraging others to understand the truth of who God is and what he's done. Just because they're around us or just because they're our kids does not mean that they will treat God rightly. But for Israel, their problem was finding a son who would lead like their dad. Israel would keep looking. And in time, eventually, God would provide a son who would lead like his dad. A son who would do it perfectly, unlike every other human son, a son whom God chose, whom God sent. But that's skipping ahead a little, and we'll come back to that soon. But here sit Israel in their search for security, looking again for a leader. They've got this great desire for a leader. We have a desire to see a new leader. So look at verse 4 of chapter 8. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. Now, the last time we heard the elders gathering together was when they got together to think through the plan of How can we beat the Philistines? I know they said, we'll take the ark down into battle and we'll beat them because God will be there. That was the last time the elders got together. And if anything, it tells us that just because two or three or four or six or eight people get together, it doesn't mean that the outcome of their decision will be good. Sometimes it's just pulled stupidity. (laughs) And that's what's going on here. They said to Samuel in verse 5, Look, you are old and your sons, they don't follow your example. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, same as all the other nations have. What was threatening their security? Samuel's age and Samuel's sons. Samuel's going to die. We won't have a leader and his sons, they're dropkicks. We don't want them around. Who'd want clowns like them running your country? Would you? No. So out of a desire for leadership, Israel want a king. Now, at first sight, you kind of, you understand where they're coming from, don't you? I get this. We want someone who will lead us. Someone unlike your sons, Samuel, who you've put in place. Those guys, they're clowns. We want someone to lead us properly. But it's both stupid and phenomenally offensive. It's stupid and phenomenally offensive. Let me, let me show you why. It's a stupid decision because... Kingship means hereditary leadership. That's what it means. You install a king and then the king dies. Who's king next? The king's son. And then the king's grandson and the king's great-grandson. And that's that's how kingship works. And the whole problem for Israel has been the leader's sons were dropkicks. They're like, man, Samuel, your sons are dropkicks. So I know what we'll do. We'll instill a form of government amongst us as a nation that ensures we have hereditary leadership. That ensures we get drop kicks for kings. You're like, what is wrong with you? Do you not get this? Like, what is going on? But secondly, it's phenomenally offensive. Have a look at verse 6. When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand sinful. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord told him, Listen to the people. 
and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. It's interesting here, isn't it? Samuel thinks they're rejecting him. Samuel thinks they're turning their back on him. But listen to what God says. They have rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshipping other gods. Remember who's saying this. The one who doesn't need anyone's help to fall other nations, to bring kings and gods to their knees before him. They were abandoning God. The issue wasn't rejecting Samuel's leadership, it was rejecting God's. It's interesting, in 1 Samuel, we see there are are three main characters throughout the, the book of 1 Samuel. There's Samuel, then there's Saul, and then there's David. But really the main character that we meet on the pages of 1 Samuel, just like the rest of the Bible, is God. He is the main character. And I think sometimes we take things a little bit too personally. I think the reason we don't share Jesus a bit more often is that we feel that when we get rejected, it's us who's rejected, not God. We kind of feel like Samuel, they're rejecting me rather than the God who we're talking to people about. The problem is, we make ourselves the main character of our lives. We put ourselves in the center of the universe. We worship us rather than God. And so when we try to talk to people about Jesus and someone says, I don't believe in that, we're like, whoa, they're attacking me. They might be a little, but understand this. Who they're attacking is the creator of the universe. That's the reality of what's going on. We need to take a few lessons from John the Baptist. When Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, what does he say? Look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There is the one who was promised to come. He says, I must decrease, he must increase. At a moment when all the popularity was focusing on this preacher, everyone was coming out to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. Everyone's seeing this guy with crazy goat skin eating kind of locusts and honey, kind of chewing on the side. He's like out there, farm boy, right? But everyone's flocking out. He's popular. Everyone wants to hear what he's got to say. He had a following. I tell you, that's security. Less of me, more of him. That's a man who's secure, isn't it? Who gets who God is and what he's done. Have you seen Jesus? It's about him. My security is not in my popularity. It's in his I want to see him increase so I may decrease. We need to be less concerned about our rejection and more concerned about his glory. So as a church, what we've started to do this month in March is to encourage people to be speaking up of this God who is in control of the world. Don't think that rejection is of us. It's of God. Let's speak of Him. Let's point people to Him. In your outline, we're starting this thing called Five for Five. It looks like this. What we're encouraging everyone at church to do um, is this. And there's one more thing that I'll talk through. So it's like the sixth. Um, Number one, it's it's to think of five people that you're around at uni, that, that you know don't know Jesus, uh, you don't have to be at uni, they could be at home, but, but people that you're in contact with. And number one, pray for them daily. Commit to say, I'm, every time I look at my hand, every time I wash my hands maybe, I'm going to think of the five things. I'm going to pray for those five people. Secondly, I'm going to try and have a conversation with those five people weekly. Not to try and convert them, just to be friends, to actually share my life with them. This isn't some kind of conversion scheme that we're trying to get people on our Amway catalogue. We actually want to know people and share our lives with them and show them what we think is the most important thing in the world. It's like we've got the cure for cancer. and Like us, everyone has it. And we want to share this news with them. And so we want to share our lives with them too. Pray for five people daily. Chat, have, commit to say, I'm going to talk to that person once a week at least. Thirdly, it's to surprise them monthly. To, to, to bless them, to do something positive with them. Uh, to spend time with them, to go out for a shout them a coffee, um, invite them around for dinner, 
just to do something to be like, hey, look, I, I really am wanting to invest in you. Again, it's not some scheme. It's that we want to be authentically with people. We want to be sharing our lives with them. Now, the fourth thing is to invite them to social events. When we're going out to something, when we're going to the Lantern Festival after church one week, to text our friends and go, hey, why don't, why don't you meet us there? I'm hanging out with some friends from church at Lantern Festival. Do you want to come? It's to actually make opportunities. They don't have to be long. They don't have to be intense. But to hang out with people, to invite them along to stuff. And fifthly, to actually speak of Jesus. To actually be real and authentic with them. To not hide who we really are, but to speak the truth with them. And the sixth thing that I'm really keen on all of us doing is this, this semester, this year, imagine if every single person at Uni Church committed to doing an hour a week of just talking to people about who they think Jesus is. Just walking up to people and sharing the news of Jesus. Saying, hey, look, I'm just a Christian on campus. We're chatting to people about who they think Jesus is. Who do you reckon Jesus is? Just a show of hands in this room. Who is a Christian today because someone did that to you? Can I see how many hands that is? There you go. Imagine if we all spoke of that this semester. Whether you do that in partnership with Student Life or Navigators or EU. Where am I? We want people sharing with these great student organizations on campus or just on your own. But imagine committing an hour a week to share this news of Jesus because I'm more interested in people seeing His glory than praising me. Well, this nation Israel, for them, it was less of God and more of us. More of what I want. More of the things that will give me security, I think. And here's where we get the ultimate offense. It's idolatry, plain and clear, right? We reject God as king We want our own king. We want to put something else or someone else in the place of God. And don't I know that I do that? I'm tempted to and I follow through with it nearly every day. Don't you? You want to, you don't want to, but you end up seeking something more than God. Um, I think there's three ways that we we can kind of express our idolatry. Three questions we can ask. Number one, who do I look to? Who do I depend on? Or what do I depend on for my security? Who do I trust is that question. As I look to what I trust, I will see my idols. I will see what I, what I run to and what I depend on for my strength and my security. Secondly, who or what do you love? What do you dream about? What do you doodle on your page as you're kind of sitting in lectures? What do you wake up thinking, oh, if only I had blank life would be better. What do I long for? Third area, who do I serve? What thing do I keep coming back to and offering my life for? They will tell us who our king is and there we will see our idols when we ask those three questions. Sometimes our idols, uh, in and of themselves, they're wrong. Like to worship another god like Dagon, who is just a statue Or Allah, who's a figment of imagination. As is Buddha, he is no God. To worship these gods is wrong because they are no God. They didn't create the world. They're not the true and living God. Or or say, to worship ourselves and say, I'm going to take my life in my hands. And we see that across the world expressed in so many ways. We see terrorists saying, I'm going to take your life in my hands. I don't care what you think. I think I'm God. I'm going to kill you because you have your beliefs. That's wrong in and of itself. That's blatantly taking the place of God or someone saying, I'm going to take my own life. It's not ours to take. That's idolatry. Those things, those idols are in and of themselves wrong. But so often we're far more sophisticated than that. We don't choose idols that are necessarily blatantly wrong. No, we take good things. Things that are a gift from God, things that God has given us, and we turn them into the ultimate thing. We turn them into the thing that we live for, the thing that we love, the thing that we serve, the thing that we trust. The thing we look for our security in. See, wanting a human leader wasn't wrong. Israel had had human leaders before, but making that person 
the ultimate king, (laughs) they took a good thing and elevated it to the ultimate thing. And there we find their problem. God had raised up leaders before them. Judges who led for a time. God used these judges to save Israel. Leaders like Gideon. But did you know Israel came to Gideon after he saved them? Israel said, Gideon, we want you to rule. We, we, literally, they said, rule over us, your sons and you and your sons and your grandson also. You're like, hey, hang on a minute. Listen to Gideon's reply. And oh, doesn't he speak so aptly at this moment? Judges 8.23, it's on the screen. Gideon says, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Bang. Nail on the head. God rules. I will not instill kingship. Now, he was still a clown and goes off and creates a vest and they start worshipping him anyway. But he gets something right here in in all his kind of um, wrongness. He hits this exactly on the head. It is God's job to rule and no one else's. Israel here now in 1 Samuel 8 have this blatant rejection of God as their king. Why? Why do they do it? Because they think their security comes from looking like everyone else. They look at the nations around them and they see what they have and they're like, oh, that looks good. Oh, that's shiny. I want a king like the Philistines have got. I want a king who can lead us into battle, who will fight for us. Oh, I want what they want. God says they have rejected me as their king because they desired to be like everyone else. They desired to be like everyone else. See, when God brought Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery, he set them up to be a nation that was different. They were to be called God's nation, a nation of priests. They were to be a light to the world, to be a sign to say, our God is the true and living God. Nations were supposed to flock to Israel because of the way they lived, the rightness of the way they lived. They were to look different amongst the world around them. Not blend in with the world, but to be set apart from other gods, to be set apart from other nations. But the more they look like the world around them, the less God would stand out. The less people would see God as the true and living God. The New Testament puts it this way. You can't love the world and love the Father also. You'll either love one or hate the other. You can't love both. The call of Scripture, of God, of the Bible, is to be countercultural, to be different from the world amongst us. Yes, in the world amongst us, surrounded by the world amongst us, living there, not like in some little hippie commune off in the desert, being like, yeah, well, this is great. We've got our own little people here and it's fun. No, 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 to be in the world, but to be a light to the world, to stand out as different, like Israel were to be as a nation. We're to say no to the pleasures of the world. When the world screams at us, just go and have sex. Whenever you want, it's good, it's fun, it's how we're made, go do it. Just go and watch whatever you want. Feast on it with your eyes. It's not going to hurt you. And we're like, you know, that kind of sounds fun. You know, people seem to say sex is fun. I'd, I'd like to try that out. Maybe not being married. Maybe I should. Maybe I should do that. We're called to say no to the pleasures of sin. You know why? Because they're seductive and they deliver a sucker punch. What's a pleasure today turns into enslavement tomorrow. We seek these things that really have no substance and they don't deliver. And so we want more of them and we go deeper in and we become enslaved to it. Don't believe me? Go ask anyone who's been addicted to porn. The stats are that most guys here in the room will struggle and in a large proportion, somewhere between 30 to 40% of women will be struggling with pornography. You ask someone who's been addicted to porn how they felt, whether they felt freed or enslaved. God's pleasures are far better. 
they last far longer. They are more satisfying. They are the right way to live. And while it may not have that candy apple attraction of sugar and floss, they sustain and are good. But what we end up doing is saying, I want a bit of what the world wants and a bit of what God says. And here we like straddle both worlds. We try and live in the world and enjoy the pleasures the world says, yeah, it's good to have this stuff. It's great to have that. Enjoy your wealth. Enjoy your money. Enjoy your sex. Just do it. But you can have your Christianity too. You can, you can serve God on a Sunday and you can go along to church and kind of have some moral values for you. And you, can, you end up being a bad pagan and a bad Christian. Like you, you can't live. You're stuck in this middle. You can't love both God and the world. It will not work. It won't work. You try to live as a Christian and feed yourself on a diet of Game of Thrones or Fifty Shades of Grey. Read the books. Watch the shows. How do you think your mind will react? Psychologists, doctors tell us that our minds don't react well. Also, GQ, men's health, they're all saying pornography is now bad. Stop it, guys. (laughs) But we think, oh no, we feed ourselves on these things. What we end up doing is turning up the volume of the world and turning down the volume of God. We're like, hey, the water around us looks great. Let's, let's jump in and we kind of turn up that tune. But that voice of God becomes very quiet. That's why being in your Bible daily matters. It's why we go to the effort to send emails to anyone who wants them Each day, five days a week of Bible readings where you can actually go through and observe what's happening. Do that soap method. You could have all sorts of methods. We don't care what method you use. But we want people in the Bible. We want people listening to God, not because it kind of makes you kind of happy. Not because it, it, you know, it ticks off your, your, oh, as a good Christian, I must read my Bible daily. Tick. God must think I'm great now. I've read my Bible seven times this week. In fact, I read it eight. It was twice on Saturday. And did you know Saturday used to be the Sabbath? God knows our hearts. I want you to read your Bible so you can turn up the volume on God. 24-7, the world is employing the best preachers it has. It's throwing billions of dollars through marketing at you to say, look at this bling, come and serve these things. And we're like, oh, I just don't feel like reading the Bible today. I just didn't have time to listen to God. Don't be so stupid. And I say that to myself because I don't know why I don't read it. I just... Keep turning up the volume of the world, driving down the road, listening to the world's tune and the world's song and not listening to God. What are we doing? I'll tell you what we're doing. We're trying to find our security in the things of the world and have our cake and eat it too because we're one of God's people. We've got God on our side. Don't fool yourselves. As you start this year at university or in work or whatever field you're in, Make God the center. I mean, think about it. We only get, what, 30 or 40 minutes on a Sunday? If, if you're doing a regular quiet time, a regular quiet time, and then connect groups, if you're regular, if you actually turn up, maybe a bit of time there to be in the Word. And, and then if you turn up and you're feeling distracted and you don't kind of get it all in or something's gone on and you're like, ah, oh. we're playing with fire. We're letting the world blare at 150 decibels and we're turning God down to 10 and being like, it's all right, I'm still there. We've got to be regular. This is life and death. (laughs) The outcome of our decisions now and the way we live and who we treat as God will affect us for 40 billion years. And at the end of 40 billion years, there'll be just as many years to come as there were when we started. Is it really worth it? For a fast car, a few friends, and 80 years of bliss, so-called. Have a listen to the warning. That's what I love about our God. Yes, He's strong. Yes, He's powerful. But He's also loving. You know, anytime someone gives you a warning, it's actually loving. It's not like, no, 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 no. You know, the, when your mum sounds like that, it's because she cares. I always say if, if, to guys who are married, or people, it's usually guys, you know, if your wife's nagging you, she's only nagging you because she's right. right. If she wasn't nagging you, you'd just say, no, that's wrong. 
But when she's right, you're like, oh, stop nagging me. In other words, you're right. I just don't want to do it. Right? There's warnings coming. Here, God is lovingly saying, listen, have a listen to the warning. Verse 9. God says, listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who will rule over them. Do you see his heart? Do you see this God and how good he is and how much he wants you to trust him and serve him? Man, he's a good God. And then he catalogues for us the reality of human kingship. We kind of go, kingship, we've worked out that doesn't really work very well. You get dictators and it all goes, yuck. They get bad hairdos, right? Anyway, talk about that later. But if you seek your security in a king, you won't find it. From verse 10 onwards, this is catalogued. They will rule over you. The king will put your sons and your daughters at disposal of his war. He'll send them to defend him. They will be plowing his ground, reaping his harvest. Everything you have, you give to a king because a kingdom belongs to the king. That's how a king works. The king owns it all. It's, it's his land. It's why on the back of every single one of piece of the coins we have is Queen Elizabeth's head. She owns it all. Now, it's more symbolic, but this is what kingship is. They'll take your best fields, your vineyards, your orchards, a tenth of your grain. They'll be paying tax to them straight away. They'll take your servants, your employees. It's funny, the narrator, as he kind of goes through this catalogue, six times he says, take, 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 take. That's what a king does. This sort of king, this king that we look at here, because everything belongs to that king. It's his kingdom. And then listen to verse 17, and you hear the kind of the punch at the end. And you yourselves can become his servants, literally slaves. Where have we heard that before? When that day comes and you cry out because the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. I think of the last time Israel were in slavery in Egypt. When they were under harsh labor because of Pharaoh. And they cried out to God because they were enslaved to this awful king. And God heard their cry and he brought them out of Egypt. And he said, what? I will be your God. I will be your king and you will be my people. And they said, yes, we'll follow you. He brought them out of slavery. But Israel want to go back into slavery again. Do you see that? And you yourselves can become his slaves. But it's worse this time. When they cry out, God will not answer them on that day. Unlike in Egypt, when he heard their cry and saved them, he will no longer. Don't do this. Don't do it. Now at this point, we must remember who the true king really is. There's no pretend king like Pharaoh or the Philistines ruler. The true king is the God who made the universe and sustains it. He's the one who allows the earthly kings to rule. And it's his warning that he gives to his people. But he wasn't enough. God was not enough for Israel. Do you ever feel that? You're ever in the situation where you're like, yeah, I get what you've done, but I just want more. Is God enough for you? Or do you think there's a greater form of security? I need to hear this warning. We need to hear it. You know, I, I think of Cain. When God spoke to Cain in Genesis 4, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Don't do it. Don't, don't do this. Stop. Treat me properly. Or at the Last Supper, when they're eating the bread and drinking of the wine and, and Jesus leans across the table and says, don't betray me. As he looks Judas in the eyes, he says, it would be better for someone to die, to have never been born, than to hand over the Son of God. Don't hand over this King. 
Don't do it. I remember sitting in a coffee shop with a friend who had saved up the money to leave his wife and move to another country and have an affair with another woman who he'd been meeting with on Skype. We happened to be preaching through Genesis 4 the week before and he happened to be at church. And he said to me, I asked him what was wrong. I noticed some stuff and he's like, and he just confessed it all. This is what I'm doing. I'm about one week's pay away from just leaving, deserting my family and my wife because I've just had enough. I can't do it anymore. And I said to him, do you think God is trying to tell you something? Don't do it. We've just heard the story of Cain and Abel. Sin is crouching at the door and what will you do? He took out his phone and said, can you delete this number? He repented. He stopped. Where is sin crouching at the door for you? Where are you likely at this very time to reject God and put something else in his place? What is it? What is God poking you to do tonight to change? This is a loving God who loves you more than you can ever know. Verse 19. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what we want. Idiots. Just like me. How many times have we received warnings from a friend who's had the guts to actually say, hey, careful what you're thinking here. Careful the line you're going down. This, careful the way you're living. Careful who you're dating. This could really end badly for you, but we thought we were smarter. We thought we had a, new, a more nuanced view of Scripture, a more enlightened understanding that allowed us a little more freedom than they had. They're just a fundamental person who really, they kind of need to be freed up. <laughs> we take the high ground. That, that's what I naturally do. I can explain it away. I can kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, but if you're in my position, you'd understand that this isn't that bad. If you could see the world the way I could, you'd know there's no other option for me. And we explain it away because we think we're smarter. We're more right than they are. It's exactly what Israel do. It's exactly what we do. Don't do it. They paint this future picture. Look, look at all those nations out there. They're all right. They're winning wars. They're having fun. They've got chariots. It can't be that bad. Just chill out a bit. You know, it'll be good. We'll, we'll still have God there, but we just got to have a king in place and it'll be fine. They're looking for their security in every other place than the one who has already secured it for them, who's brought them out of slavery who's already saved them and called them his people and promised them a land and blessing and future. But they're like, oh no, we want, we want to find it some other way. This is the God who parted the Red Sea, who fell Dagon to his knees, who created the universe and upholds it. Man, I see myself in this passage. How stupid I sometimes are, am. I don't want a king, just like everyone else. We want a king. You hear the whining little Israelite voice, the one that's inside you and me. I want a bank balance, just like them. I love their house. If I had a house like them, then I'd be okay. If I had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or wife, then life would look so much better. If, if I had better health, I want better health. If you give me better health, then I'll be secure. If I had better marks, better job prospects, better time, better organization, better all sorts of things that we find our security in. In 40 billion years, we'll look like nothing. Yet God has secured it for us. He's offered us life forever. Do you really want to trade eternity for a blink of an eye? For eating candy floss? The true and living God of the universe saying stop but they don't 
So God hands them over to their own stupidity. He gives them what they want. And if anything, we've got a note here. God says to them, you want to play that game? You want to live life without me? You want another king? You know what punishment you'll get? I'll give you what you ask for. You can see how that'll play out for you when that king does all those things that I've said. It's a great reminder, isn't it? Surely that getting what we ask for doesn't mean it was right for us or good for us. Sometimes like, oh, look, you know, it happened. Sure, I might have cheated on a test, but I passed and they didn't find out it was okay. Or, or, you know, I might not have actually kind of earned all that or I kind of might have stolen a little bit of it, but it's, it's fine. Or whatever way we think we've lived, we think, yeah, it's good. You know, I dated that non-Christian and they became a Christian and everything was great. So it's all fine. Just because something works out doesn't mean it's God's blessing. It's obvious here. It's what happens in Romans. God hands us over to what we want. You want life without me? You'll get it. God hands us over so we'll see the stupidity of our decisions and come back to Him. It's also a good reminder that just because once upon a time we came running to God, and we put off our idols and we said no to sin and we treated him seriously. That doesn't mean we don't need to keep doing that. Israel threw away their idols. They said, yes, God will be our God and they worshipped him. But just 20 years later, blink of an eye, they went back to idolatry. Just because you put sin away once doesn't mean it's not crouching at the door again. Is it? Are there things that in the past you have put away that now there is something else? Or maybe that same thing, crouching at the door. We need to live lives of repentance, of coming back to God and treating Him as He is. While Israel's rebellion was clear against God, there, there was something right about their desire for a king, for a human king. Not just because the nations had one around them. Not because they wanted to choose it. That wasn't why it was right. It was because, well, God would choose a king for Israel. He had promised a leader, a man, flesh and blood, would be given kingship, would be given all authority. Not just over Israel, but over heaven and earth. Everything would be his. God would choose a human, a flesh and blood person like you and me, And give the world to him. Everything would be his. But this king would not lord it over humanity. For he was a king like no other. This king, although he owned everything and everyone. Would not seek to be served. But lay down his life for you and me. His name is Jesus. When... In the first century, Jesus was on the scene and the political head of the world, of the Roman Empire, Pontius Pilate, the representative of that kingship and nation, questioned Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews, he said? Jesus' reply was, my kingdom is not of this world. Do you see what he's saying? I am not a king like the kings of the other nations. I'm not a king like them. I'm a king that is far, far, far different. He says to his disciples as he ascends to heaven in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I own everything. It's all been given to me. I am the king. There is no other. I I uphold the universe through me. The universe was created. Everything has been given to me. And yet I've laid my life down for you. So that the sin that you and I commit, the times we put something or someone in the place of God can be forgiven. And that's a king that I like. That's a king that I'll be enslaved to. I'll serve for he's a good king. He is a king that has my best interest at heart, who died for me in my place. He's not a king that takes, takes, takes. He's a king who serves, serves, serves. That is the leader that we're looking for. And that king has died for you. This king is the only place you can find security. 
counterintuitively, security comes from letting go of control of the world, from letting go of seeking the things that we think we'll find it in and trusting the one who's already given it to us. It's right here in front of our faces. He has died and, and risen again. Every year we write the date, we write 2015 AD in the year of our Lord. We're reminded that security has been offered. Death has been defeated. Life is available to you right now. The question is, have you taken it? Is your life in Jesus' hands, really? Imagine being totally and utterly secure. Not having a worry in the world. Nothing to fear, no death to be concerned about. Having certainty of life forever. Not worrying what the outcome will be, but being totally and utterly secure. That's what Jesus offers us. He offers you right now. Life, hope, forgiveness. Your relationship with God restored. Yeah, life will be hard. It will have ups and downs. It's not all rosy and like, oh, it'll be so great now in the way we think of it. But he is molding us to be like his son, Jesus. And in the age to come, eternal life, says Jesus. That's what I'm offering you. Something that no one or no thing can ever take from you. Security comes from letting go of our own control and the illusion that we can provide our own security. It's letting go of the facade that the world offers security. And it's looking to the one who holds all things together. Who will be your king? Who will be your king? Who will you serve? Who will you love? Who will you trust? Why don't we pray and come before our great God right now and ask him to forgive us for the times that we've sinned and ask him to make Jesus our all, our security, our life. Let's pray together. Father God, tonight we confess that we so often put ourselves and the bling of the world in your place. That we reject you, that our heart's desire is to find security in every other place but in you. Lord, please help us to see the amazing hope and security we have in Jesus. Help us tonight to see clearly who he is and what he's done. Help us tonight, Lord, to choose Jesus as our king. That we might remember he has died for us. That we might speak with passion and clarity to those around us. That we might share our lives with people so they might see the truth. That your son is king. Lord, we ask this very night. You would so capture us with who you are that we might serve you the rest of our days like a moth is drawn to light so we might be drawn to your son. Amen.